we sold our first series maybe two weeks into starting our company and we thought it was just going to be the easiest thing in the world and it was an eight episode series for a major cable network and we were interviewing showrunners and uh, high-fiving each other and we were very excited thinking this was how easy it was going to be and then a criminal background check came back for one of the crucial cast members and the person had a major major felony on their background check and it basically just killed the show welcome friends to exec producer i'm your host noah pollock Every episode of Exec Producer offers a deep dive into the content, trends, and movements defining our industry from the point of view of the people at the center of the action, where the idea came from, the hurdles they faced in building it, and ultimately, how it became an actualized part of popular culture. I've produced and overseen hundreds of hours of content. I've seen the good, the bad, and the ugly, and I hope to share some of that wisdom with you. So settle in, turn it up, and enjoy, and please also remember to subscribe wherever you get your podcasts. So with that, thank you again and enjoy the show. All right, guys. The 17 podcast, we are rolling. Hey. Uh, we're going to kick off with uh, two really, really adored, universally beloved producers. And they go by the company name B17. Their names are Brian Mahar and Rhett Backner. Welcome, gentlemen. Thanks Great to be here. Us. Yeah, we're excited. Yeah, well, you guys are really, really just kind of everywhere. You've done a lot in the seven years, now entering your eighth year of existence. And and again, we'll get into all that. But it really is the work that you've done in the last few years where you seem to have cornered the market on digital production and a lot of the new age kind of uh, programmers in a way that that others, I'm sure, are very envious of. And so we'd love to get into that. We'd love to get into a lot of things. So uh, let's let's get rolling. So first off, let's start with the light bulb, as we do with everything. I know this is about a company and not about any specific show, but we'd just love to hear a little bit from, frankly, either one of you, whoever wants to jump in first, to talk about how you two determined, let's, you know what, we're successful showrunners, successful development executives, we're doing this thing why don't we just start our own company? Because we'll do it better than, than everyone else. Was that the was that the calculus or was there something more to it? Right, you tell this story better. I'll, I'll, gi- I'll give you the, the version of how it, it went down and then Rhett will give you the version that we tell the buyers uh, when we're pitching them shows. But I, I mean, correct me if I'm wrong, but I'm pretty sure Rhett and I met um, uh, drinking, you know, uh, beer on the beach, basically. Uh, I don't know how many years ago. But our my uh, my wife is is friends with one of his good friends from high school, and we would um, we would go to Venice Beach, and we were much younger, and we would sit down. And at the time, I was uh, a development lackey for Mark Burnett, and Rhett was running his own company successfully, and uh, Rhett would complain about not doing uh, bigger shows, and uh, and I would complain about having no creative control and not owning my own company, and then. I think we both realized that we needed each other. How many? Sure. I would say, how many beers did it take you to come to that? Uh, to, to that conclusion? <laughs> Too many. Too well, many. We, were, we were on our beach bike, so I would say probably quite a few. Since there was no real driving back then, it wasn't like now, where uh, where until COVID struck, at least we were spending more than half the week in the car. We talked 100%. about it for a while. We talked about it for a while, and we, we we I think we knew then, and we know more even so now that you know we're really 
great complement to each other in terms of how we approach the creative, how we approach the company, how we approach show running. Um, I think we, we fill in the gaps for each other in, in quite a few places, which hopefully helps the content that we put out. And just eventually it just sort of presented, the opportunity presented itself. Um, and uh, it was somewhat serendipitous. I came over to Mark just to help produce some, some cable projects. And uh, Brian was shepherding in, you know, Shark Tank at that time with Mark and Sony. And that was re really became a passion project for Brian. Um, and it just worked out that I rolled off of some cable show, you know, right into Shark Tank with Bry. And then, you know, while doing those first, you know, three years of Shark Tank, we the wheels really started turning. You work on Shark Tank, you really get the entrepreneurial bug is just everybody is looking around at like, how do we, how can we strike gold, make more money, make, do your own thing. Um, be in control, and uh, I think you know through that process we realized that we were ready to start our own our own shop. But also from watching Shark Tank, it seems like everyone comes in with some sort of novel approach to a business or a novel product or you know something that's not really out there. And you know what what was it about your partnership that made you guys think that you would be successful or, or somehow differentiate yourself from the hundred or thousand other companies that were already in existence? Did you have really a really clear vision of that or you were just a, a little bit buzzed and a little bit frustrated and, and just said, F it, let's, let's roll? I mean, I think it's the latter. I mean, I think you're just naive. I mean, I think every entrepreneur is just naive enough to, you know, uh, have a willingness to jump in knowing like, traditionally the odds are against you i mean just most businesses uh you know self startups just don't don't make it but i mean listen we we both we we know how to make content uh brian is prolific when it comes to developing it as well and it just seemed like it was uh it seemed like we had good tools to be able to succeed um and and truthfully we had some people and brian you can jump in if you feel differently but i think it was also just we had some people that really believed in us and sometimes that's what it takes is someone looking at you and saying you guys can do this and we believe in what you are going to create and who who the company you can become um i think of like you know jen o'connell who has always been uh an advocate for us but also just a, a mentor and when she was at, you know, when she was at Core uh, in the early days with Mark Graboff as well, who was really supportive, you know, they they saw something in us, and I think you know that validation made us feel really confident uh, diving in. And there were a few other companies as well. And Eli, I think it's so great that we've come full circle because it was really Eli who gave us our first overall deal, uh, and Aaron over there at all three. Um, and really made us see the possibilities of who we could be as a partnership. Um, and it's kind of kind of serendipitous that we're back working with Eli again, because uh, he really did help kip, kick off the uh, the future of B17. And of course, you mean Eli Holtzman and Industrial and that. And that yes. Right. Yes, Eli. For, you know, just to give clarification for, for anyone out there who's unaware, obviously there's a few Eli's and a very, very prolific producer and company for sure. So, okay, so you guys link arms and you shake hands and you say, we're gonna do this, but then kind of what's next? Did you just get a folding table and just start coming up with ideas? I mean, what, what did you do on day one? Did you have a hundred day strategy? Did you have short-term goals, medium-term goals, long-term goals? I mean, or you just basically just, just dove into the deep end and, and hoped you could swim? 
Brian, what do you remember? I'd love I'd love to say that we had like a formal business plan. I think we had we knew I mean, going back to your first question a little bit, I think there was also there were people who even told us that it wasn't a good idea even back then to start a production company. I distinctly remember Mark Burnett when I told him that that we were leaving, um, saying, "Hey, it's not a great time uh, to start a volume based, uh, you know, linear production company." And uh, it wasn't him trying to to keep me there or us there. It was more of a you know, a general warning that like people aren't getting the deals that he got back in the day with Survivor, Apprentice, Fifth Grader, um, and that it's a, a real uphill struggle to try to, you know, carve out um, a, a good living when you're essentially just taking a, a percentage of, of um, you know, of the fee that it takes to make the show. And I think there was a, a point probably where I think we were a little bit naive and just said, Hey, people are trusting us to show run shows. And if you've worked for, if you're a showrunner in, in television, probably scripted or non-scripted, I think you start working for companies and you realize as the showrunner that you're the only person interacting with the network. You're the person finding the graphics company. You're doing all the work and you start saying to yourself as a showrunner, like, why don't I just start my own company? And I think that's probably every showrunner has probably thought that at some point. And I think it can get a lot of people in trouble. Um, there are things that will absolutely, you know, uh, make you second guess uh, the decision to start a company when it, it comes to things like taxes and payroll and all the scary stuff that fortunately Rhett having ran a company successfully before in the past, um, had done. So I think for, for at least for me, I was able to say, Hey, like my friend has, has done this before. And I had the confidence to say it's worth kind of going headfirst into and just literally laying everything on the line of what we can come up with and, and sell creatively. And I think at the time, both of us were independently out there with projects that we really liked and getting people excited, selling shows, um, uh, into some form of development and and or pilot. Um, and it just, um, it felt like sort of the right time to do it. And a partnership is a good way of doing it. I think that's why you see a lot of successful partnerships. I couldn't imagine doing this alone. You know, sometimes you're, you have an idea, obviously I'm sure in your podcast, a lot of this, is, a lot of it's like a light bulb moments, ideas, ideas for big shows. Sometimes you have an idea and you could end up sitting with it for two weeks thinking it's genius and and really just spinning your wheels. And I think the beauty of a partnership is you just get on the, the phone with your partner or Zoom now and say, hey, what do you think of this? And it's been done or I hate it or let's do it. I love it. We both love it. Let's invest in it. And I think there's some real security creatively knowing that you have um, another person to bounce ideas off of before you you know go all in on spending cash on development. Well, and not just cash, but also time, right? Yeah. yeah. One thing that you both touched on and that, Brian, you just, just mentioned um, is this idea of the partnership that you brought different skill sets to the table. Uh, you know, I, one thing I've certainly noticed is that sometimes people, when they do partner with somebody who does exactly what they do, uh, and maybe ultimately that's not the smartest way of going about it. I mean, did you guys, was that a real sort of... Um, you know, thought that you both had, hey, I, I'll be better, you know, with the things that are on the left and you'd be better at things on the right and we can car carve it up that way? Or is it just sort of naturally found its own rhythm? I mean, it found its own rhythm, but I, I also think to just circling back to sort of that initial 
those that initial dialogue that Brian and I were having about my previous experience, which is really just you know small mid-sized cable you know my you know me we had created you know man caves for diy and the henry rollins show for ifc and these were smaller scale productions and everything that brian was doing at burnett was just like huge you know like i couldn't even understand the scale of an apprentice or uh you know, I remember one one of the times that we met up, Brian was either just about to go off to sea on Pirate Master. I know he doesn't want me to mention that one, or had just come back from sea on Pirate Master, and just trying to understand the the scale of the size of the show and the format and what goes into a Burnett show, um, Eco Challenge and Survivor. I mean, it's just it was the stories that he would tell and understanding the. Uh, you know, what it takes to pull off a, a show like that was not experience that I had had. Um, and with cable shows, um, particularly smaller cable shows, you kind of, you know, you, you kind of do everything, you know? So there's, I think there's something to that piece as well that maybe was a good compliment to, uh, to, to Brian's sort of grand scale world as well. But the, I think the one common denominator for us was you just recognize when someone has a similar work ethic. And, you know, I, Brian, I hate speaking for you in that way, but I just, I think, okay. and I, I want to believe that our partners see us this way, but we're kind of grinders, you know what I mean? Whether it's the way we grew up outside of Boston or whatever it is, I don't, I, I'd like to think of ourselves now as good executives and we've become that. I hope, I hope folks feel that way about us, but who knows? Um, but, I think ultimately we are folks that like to get down and dirty and make content and be a part of the process. And some of that has hindered us from being able to scale in certain ways because we like to still very much be hands-on. And we, we, and you know, uh, once we're in a show, I think that, you know, we complement each other and from, you know, initially in terms of our experience, now we're making the same shows together, but within a particular product also, we approach things different way in the edit. Brian may be focused on, uh, you know, really important format beats, and I may be looking at uh, music and and narration and and uh, style. Uh, you know, and we both, again, we both have a voice on each side of that. But I think we find ourselves complementing each other even within a show, um, and that's been, I think, really helpful in making our stuff uh, hopefully feel feel you know really premium for viewers and for our buyers. Yeah, I don't know if this is relevant, but I'll also say too, it's like. We were lucky to kind of grow up in in non-scripted at a time where the people who hired us for jobs, our bosses, our you know people that brought us in to help run shows or create challenges or whatever, are really um, there. There's some just huge names and and people who like we're super um, grateful and and lucky even to have been you know um, uh, working for or or with. And I think. Uh, that outside of luck and good partnerships and stuff like that, sometimes it really is, you know, the people that you've worked with before that you've, you know, from, oh, obviously we mentioned Mark Burnett, Rhett was really close with Doug Ross and uh, Jen O'Connell is like, couldn't be more imperative to bringing us on to what was, what was core and what is now um, industrial Eli Holzman, Aaron Sedman, Dave Eilenberg, who's just been like a, I know, I'm sure you've probably even done, done an episode with Dave, but Dave is like everybody's uh, secret agent, you know, at now running ITV. 
but also um, just, uh, you know, those those type of people are sort of what has allowed us, I think, to comfortably form a, a company and knowing that we can sell shows and and, um, and and operate knowing that these people are either buyers now or in, you know, Eli's case, um, someone who's helping us grow our company. For sure. But, you know, everyone that you just mentioned there, uh, they all know hundreds, thousands of people and they chose the two of you, right? And maybe they've chosen more than just the two of you to mentor and to help, but it obviously speaks to the work and it speaks to the work ethic. I mean, I talk a lot about on the show that there's doers and there's promisers, right? And the fact that you guys are doers, I mean, you got to be a little bit of a promiser. You're never going to sell anything. Uh, but if you're not a doer, then what, what do you have, right? You ultimately need to know how to make this stuff, um, you know, unless you are truly the world's greatest salesman or, or saleswoman. Then you can <laughs> Those people are Bry's, Bry's pretty good in the room, but yeah, we 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 get in and we make it, and we um we won't sleep until we're happy with it, and that that is um, uh, uh, hopefully a, a testament to the content, and also the reason our wives are probably over it. But uh, yeah, if it I, were for COVID, yeah. they'd be in Venice drinking right now, you know? Yeah, <laughs> yeah exactly. Think how much I think you'd go if you didn't love it, you'd go crazy. Like you know, Red and I just finished filming. Um, uh, this uh, big baking format for HBO Max. And, you know, we're there, we're on set, we're, you know, we're out there wearing, you know, multiple layers of masks and being tested like crazy. But like, outside of like, okay, is the format working? Is the talent happy? Are they right? Like, are we getting through the day? Are we staying on budget? Like, there's a piece of me that's like, man, I want to work that fucking jib, you know, like, <laughs> Like what I wouldn't give uh, to, you know, actually be able to sort of play with some of the tools of the trade. And I think, you know, having a basic knowledge of, you know, of how the actual everyone's job on a show and and being genuinely interested in, in that kind of stuff is, is what keeps it interesting. Timing is everything in a lot of ways. And Brian and I were both sort of got got into unscripted at a time where you still sort of did everything you know now some folks just come up from posts through posts to story producers or they're they're just part of the production crew or they're just in development and they they try to cross over into different areas but the the industry has evolved so much that you might have a particular trade within it and i think there was a there was a moment in time when earlier days not to age ourselves of unscripted where you you were a producer you 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 may have done all of that you it, it you know um and i think that has helped us as well in terms of being to brian's point being able to be on a set and be able to speak to you know the director or the the dp about certain elements of of you know in an informed way um, just as much as we can coach the talent or our producerial staff or even our culinary staff and the things we've picked up along the way. So that's just sort of serendipitous that we both had the luxury of being involved in all the minutiae um, at that time, because I feel bad sometimes for producers who aren't getting the experience they want. Um, and I applaud producers who are willing to now know they have to make that leap Um which I think is re a really smart thing to do. I look at, uh, you know, Claire Kosloff right now, who's show running uh, Craftopia for us. And she had always been our post superstar, you know, like we always brought her in broadcast game shows can oversee posts so talented. 
And she was like, I'm going to make a point at some point. I don't want to speak for her. It's not, she's not on this podcast, but she really wanted to get more field experience. And she went out and did it. She was show running Hunting Hitler and all these awesome shows. And it's so great now to be able to bring her in as such a well-rounded showrunner. Um, but they, she had to make that decision. It was sort of made for us, for Brian and I, because we were a little bit more early days. Yeah, I mean, it definitely seems like the forces that are at work, just not just as the industry matures, but also as uh, you know, the various networks sort of want this, uh, you do this, you do that. And it can be very hard to break out of those boxes. And so you guys are fortunate to have experienced that. But then on the flip side of that, people really want experts and it's hard to be an expert at 15 different things. I mean, you also, I should, should also remind everyone, Rhett, that you left out one other key part of the uh, the equation that you've also experienced, which is on-camera talent. <laughs> Please edit that out. No. <laughs> oh, yeah, come on. <laughs> Everyone's favorite camp counselor. Please. Oh, bless you. <laughs> still, I'm still a camp counselor. It's no different in this business. As the, company, as the company grows, I'm leaning more and more on those skills. That is for sure. And we won't talk about bug juice too much, but how often, how frequently does, uh, does that get brought up? I mean, less now, certainly in the Disney building, um, but uh, the more I get removed from it, less and less. But people have a love for that show. It was at a critical time for Unscripted, right? It was 97. A Real World was like season two, season three. There's a purity to wait. I mean, it just, when we shot for like 20 hours a day. But for me, it was, as Brian pointed out, really just attaching myself to Doug Ross and, and Rupert Thompson and learning so much from those guys. Um, and Doug, you know, they both remained mentors for us. Um, but it gets brought up here and there. Um, well, mostly because Brian does it just to give me shit and it's totally fine, but, um. <laughs> well, I, you know, I'm a, I'm a summer camp guy as well. So, you know, definitely nothing but love for, for you and the camp, uh, camp counselor hall of fame. Uh, I knew I liked you. I knew I liked you for a reason, Noah. Yeah, man. Four summers. I, I did all kinds of crazy things. So exactly. Just not on, just not on the Disney channel. So, uh, so yeah, but okay. So also Brian, going back, you said something about your conversation with Mark Burnett when you thought about starting this company, which was, he said, Oh, I don't know if this is a good time and you're not going to be able to make the margins and these shows and this, that, the other, how long did it take you guys to realize that he was right and that you should pivot <laughs> from, you know, chasing all the same, you know, uh, ducks as everyone else. And making what's proven to be a very, very wise diversification move uh, in producing for so many sort of digital platforms and, you know, short form content and not the big shows that maybe you dreamt of initially, but now actually those places have matured and are probably commissioning the big shows from you. Uh, even if that wasn't maybe the case three, four years ago when, when you started to, to sell to them. He was right, at least initially out of the gates. And he wasn't doing it as a, a means by which to try to openly dissuade us from achieving our dreams as much as, I mean, he just knew from experimenting in cable uh, and what, you know, uh, you know, the, the big reality boom had in a sense passed Obviously there's, there's, you'll, there'll be a big hit every couple of years and there'll be a huge payday and someone will sell their company for tens, if not hundreds of millions of dollars. But it feels like we were maybe, you know, five to 10 years too late for that initial blast where people were, you know, kind of getting crazy money and, um, and scaling faster than you could potentially imagine. And, 
you know, everyone out there who's listening that has, you know, worked in non-scripted obviously knows that sort of uh, the steps that you need to go through even to get a pilot off the ground is almost a 12 month process, you know? And sometimes that's different. Sometimes you get lucky, but it's, it's certainly, I remember when just from working in for Mark for almost nine years with some just amazing people that there would be times that, you know, someone, Mark would go to lunch and come back having sold a, you know, eight episode series. And, um, and obviously it's, um, it was a grind, uh, in order to start selling shows. And, and even when we did, um, I don't know if we want to go into the details of it, but like even, even, I think we sold our first series, maybe two weeks into, um, uh, starting our company. And we thought it was just going to be the easiest thing in the world. And it was an eight episode series for, a major cable network and we uh, had only hired two people and it was sold and we were hiring, we were interviewing showrunners and uh, high-fiving each other. And we were very excited thinking this was how easy it was going to be. And then a criminal background check came back for one of the crucial cast members of this series. And the person um, had a, uh, a major, major felony on their, background check and it basically just killed the show it was gone that fast when when the network realized they couldn't put him on a billboard and we couldn't fly out and make a show about him and his uh group of 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 people we uh were devastated you know and and i think you know you every now and then you have those moments in tv where you know we used to celebrate right and i used to have a thing we still do but we used to have a thing that every time we sold a show we would just at least sit down and have one beer and enjoy it before we started realizing that all this <laughs> yeah, was to fall it. apart. Yeah, that we had to make <laughs> it and there's going to be all these issues. And, <laughs> and you know, and I think you have to be careful now when you celebrate. So it used to be that you'd celebrate when, you know, the you had a verbal agreement that the network wanted to give you a series. And then you waited for the paperwork and and then you waited until you actually went and shot the show. And now we wait until to have a beer until the show actually goes up on the air and airs. And that's <laughs> that's the only time where you can confidently say that you're you've sold the show is, is when you're watching it on your television. So true. Or, or well, phone. Not your television. On your whatever. Yeah, your phone, your yeah, iPad, on your device. Absolutely. Yeah. Well, okay. So 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 you made a conscious pivot at some point to diversify and sell beyond just the traditional television landscape. Uh, a thing that everyone wants to do now and have been talking about, but you guys, you know, really one of the first companies of record to do it. And you've had incredible results. Uh, you know, seemingly it seems like YouTube and, you know, God, just, uh, you know, Facebook and just every sort of next generation platform. Oh, let's do it with B17, B17. I mean, there's just such like a, a ubiquitous sort of happy buzz around, around you guys, not to say that you're not also beloved and, and selling in, in the more traditional space as well, but Specific to to those kinds of buyers, I mean, have you found the process to be quite different? Um, I'm sure the answer is yes, but how is it different? How is it better? If you're uh, willing to maybe dive into maybe some of the ways it's challenging, we'd just love to kind of hear your your hundred thousand foot assessment for you know for those listeners out there who are, are you know thinking about making that same kind of switch. Yeah, I mean it's. It it really depends on the platform and the show even, you know, cause within even just a YouTube original, we could be making something that's, you know, uh, you know, slightly smaller scale, but they're also doing, you know, uh, bigger budget programming. So it's, it's, 
it's it, there isn't a, you know a, a comprehensive way to answer that but i think i think you know for us we made the jump actually really started more with snap um a colleague of ours took over originals over there and really smart guy sean mills and was like you know i think you got you know we're, we're going to look at possibly putting some unscripted type of content on this platform on the discover platform and i think you guys might be good at it um and we weren't sure if we would be to be honest it's just what we realized once we dug into it especially when you think about short form and mid form you know for us we had sort of gotten some ex some experience you know shark, even shark tank uh, at ABC was a seven minute narrative. You know, these were pod based shows. And then the first one of the bigger series that we sold initially as B17 was broke ass game show at MTV. And these were all like three, four minute comedy bits. You know what I mean? So we spent a couple of years over those 40 episodes or something really sort of protect, per, perfecting what a, a short form or mid form piece of content looks like. That's also sort of fresh and comedic. Um, so when we started producing for snap there was something there it was still really challenging for us i mean we like you know i remember us sitting in edit phase just trying to figure it out it wasn't easy you would think it's just like making content for mobile um but it required a totally different set of rules we had to unlearn a lot of what we were doing in linear um in terms of the way you would score something the way you would lead the viewer the way you would sort of maximize for authenticity um and that process was we, we picked it up pretty fast i think and that helped inform what we would then do at facebook watch and and youtube and uh you know even uh we do a lot of disney uh, social originals and now TikTok, and um we just we sort of feel like we have a little bit of a, a skill for that um and i think the best part about that for B17 is that has really informed what we're doing for the streamers there's and for linear even I think there's some there's a lot you can pull out of there that can make your content feel fresh um and I think that's really worked well for us is to try to work in both worlds simultaneously um and I, I'm hoping that will continue to be the case as long as uh, some of these, the, the social platforms are continuing to uh, commission originals. I don't know if that answered your question, but. No, it absolutely does. I mean, and, and it actually brings up another question, which is how long they'll commission originals. Is that uh, because the creators themselves are just putting up content and maybe the producer isn't as vital or, you know, it's just, it's just not their core product, right? Like if you're, I mean, that's the thing you always sort of realize and at different points in the process with any of these platforms, it's, you know, Facebook, their primary interest is not making originals. They've got a pretty, pretty big social media platform. They have to manage same thing with snap, same thing with YouTube, you know? So, uh, and TikTok as well. The product itself is probably paramount in in, uh, uh, in, in comparison to the show. So you ha you play a role within that, but there's a much bigger machine there. Um, I think Brian and I have always been really good at branded and understanding how to speak brand. Maybe some of that comes from Shark, Shark Tank as well. So we've been able to navigate those worlds pretty well. At least I, I would think they would think so. You know, the shows like Confetti, for example, at Facebook Watch, which was, you know, somewhat similar to HQ as a reference point. It's like a live trivia show that we did in the US. And then we 
reformatted and we were we were doing a hub model we were coming to the us mexico and canada all at the same time you just bring in a different host under the same set hundreds of episodes daily live trivia we had to develop that with their engineers you know it was like took months and months like a year of development not just with the originals team who were awesome over there mina and toby and everybody but but with their their product team their engineering team their marketing team and i think we sort of like that challenge bry right like we sort of yeah, I, I think we also like eyeballs and that's like, you know, maybe it's the invisible marquee in, in our heads, but like, you know, as producers, you would make a show and you'd be like, I really hope people watch this. And I think, you know, forever, we've all had that, that like nervous excitement. Is this going to be the show that like hits critical mass and everyone knows and talks about and congratulates you on, or is it going to be that thing that just like, is a total piece of crap that disappears and you spent like half a year of your life making it. And I think the allure for, you know, the Snapchats and, and TikToks and Facebooks uh, of the world and Instagram TV was like, this is where the eyeballs are at. So like, it wasn't at any point, it wasn't like, Hey, let's, let's diversify so we can do charity work for these, you know, like uh, these streaming or these, these apps let's for us, it was like with Sean Mills and, and Snapchat, it was like, you know, there's, 10 million people watching, you know, the, the scrolling through at any point on their original content. So we, we started doing stuff and putting it up there and you'd have three to 4 million, you know, people consume it in one day. Whereas we have a cable show on at the exact same time. And you would get, you know, gloomy phone calls from network executives saying, Oh man, like only like 150,000 people watch that thing. So there was a little bit of a high that we got from just like, doing programming that people were actually watching regardless of, of whether it was yeah you know three minutes long and and shot vertically i want to also say too like the beginning the, those early days like we were creating like cardboard viewfinders to go over you know the viewfinder on the camera that like was vertically framed because people weren't doing that stuff before and i think for Rhett and i like we love the challenge we love when we hear about a new platform that's buying something and i think at the end of the day, we we usually read has found who is buying, who is the person, and we are on the phone with them two days later, saying, "Here's what we've done for other new platforms that have gotten started." And I think there's yes, there's business in it, there's money in it, um, but also it's like you you just you get a kick out of like finding new ways to make content that that people are actually consuming. Yeah, and sometimes there isn't by the way sometimes the model is not a good one financially i mean that is I mean, that is very much the truth of it but but you you pull so much out of it that can inform some of the other work you do you know there's an attitude and a reverence that you have to have to your content on mobile or it's just not going to work when you're holding the screen and the remote control at the same time people will just, it's too easy to flip out and i think that's just made us better producers i look at I can see direct correlations between some of the things we do for like a craftopia that's programming to Gen Z potentially and stuff that we've taken out of, you know, our snap shows or our Disney social originals or, um, and that's hopefully just like making us a better production company, even if, uh, even if the cost of admission is slightly higher because the margins aren't there where we're willing to do that. And, um, if it, if it's going to make us better producers all around. Right. You can look at it as a paid internship a little bit because the payoff will be down the line. But when you went down this path, you know, you, if 
correct me if I'm wrong, but you were under an overall uh, at the time, right? Or were you owned? When we started doing the Snap yeah. content, yes, we were a part of Core. Right. So did you, yeah. did you have any sort of like corporate sign off of, hey, guys, this is not worth your time. You're only going to make $8 and we need you out there selling the next Shark Tank. I mean, you know, the, the yeah, the uh, again, but you're yes, absolutely. We needed folks to buy in and but they, you know, they understood that there was an opportunity there. And, um, you know, I think we made a pretty compelling argument on why we should try. We ended up forming another entity at that time called Thumb Candy. Um, just in case that sort of became its own, uh, you know, had to go down its own path. But I think what we realized a couple of years in, like all of us are realizing now is like, well, what is digital? What is, what is streaming? They're all, you know, they're all the same, you know, and to some extent we're all heading in the same direction. It's just where are you going to watch this content? Where are you going to consume these shows? And, um, so we we put it all back under the B seventeen umbrella and consolidated a little bit, and that's really worked for us to be able to uh, sort of run those parallel paths. Well, it seems also again you're driven for all the right reasons, right? And the money is a prize, and the money is great when it comes, but the work, doing the work, and setting yourself up for long term success uh, seems like it's a much more valuable reason to to chase any business, right? To learn and to grow, and you know do all the great things that you've done. One other you know, place I have to imagine it really has paid dividends is while you had produced hundreds of hours previously, the work you did in 2020 and being remote, I got to figure you were more equipped to do that than maybe some of your contemporaries, just because of some of the, uh, some of the learnings you had from, from all these productions or, or were you just figuring out like everyone else and uh, flying blind and hoping that, that you'd hit your deadlines? Or do you feel like you came in with any, any sort of added wisdom? of, you know, being scrappy and doing things maybe in a, in a slightly different way than what people are used to. I mean, listen, the one thing that did happen over the past years is a, a lot of the social platforms found people were looking to that content more than ever. I mean, obviously people were looking to television as well, but it was, it, it, there was just so much more time to consume um, that folks were trying to figure out, they were, they were looking for answers. And so there was a lot to be made on the social platforms as well, which was helpful for us. We're really proud of the graduation project that we did with Facebook Watch and Oprah Winfrey and an awesome um, uh, list of talent that wanted to contribute. Um, but I don't know, were we better equipped, Bri? I don't know. If, I, if I mean, I don't case. know if we were, I mean, maybe we were better equipped, but I think we were we were really fast moving. I think we had maybe two or three days of doom and gloom where we wondered if, you know, we were going to have to start laying people off and we wondered if we were going to have to start selling equipment and we wondered what we were going to, you know, 20,000 square feet of offices. We wondered what the hell was going to be inside of them. And I think after like two or three days of just like pure panic, um, once we realized that there was a, a safe way to continue to film and and all the networks and all the platforms were trying to figure it out as well. And, you know, I think we were right out of the gates. We were like, okay, can we, can we get studio space and put up plastic walls and have people shooting in hazmat suits? And as crazy as that sounds, that was like, Basically, we started thinking, do we need to be buying that stuff? We bought PPE like crazy immediately. We bought a ton of it once we realized that that the doctors and nurses and people had enough, of course. Um, but we we and we were very confident about our ability to, you know, film and film safely, knowing that we are, you know, a little bit um, 
scrappy sometimes in terms of how we're able to pull things off. We have our own studio at B17, which allowed us to do some stuff. And, you know, I, I also think part of it is in is relationship based. I mean, we, a lot of people during COVID, a lot of buyers didn't have an opportunity, I think, to, to put out an RFP and like an ad agency, get back a whole bunch of different, you know, sizzles and PowerPoints from other production companies. I think they, they said, okay, who can we, in a sense, trust um, to do this and who's willing to get their hands dirty now when it was still a little bit scary out there. And um, we have a hard time saying no to anything, truthfully. So, um, <laughs> so we, again, we, we did, and Rhett knows the numbers better, but I think, you know, we did like over 70 plus like hours and we did uh, like almost 11 series, I think, and, and ultimately did more than we did the year previous. We're very proud of having filmed the 11 series between July and December with no stop downs. I think we were, we took, we approached the product, the production side of that very, very seriously, the safety of our employees. We wanted to be the best at that piece. Um, and that served us well. Right. And, I, and I will say just to, to just circling back this past year as well, we're, we, we don't pretend to be that big of a company. We're just not. So, I'm sure we'd like to be maybe, but we're just, to Brian's point about being scrappy, we're just the right size that we can turn left pretty quick. And I imagine that's harder for bigger production companies. But for us, we've sort of maintained the size where we can do a good amount of series per year, but still keep Brian and I involved in them enough that they always have our fingerprints pretty much all over them. Um, probably just some of our showrunners <laughs> chagrin, but... For, for better or for um, but, worse, you know, yeah. and that may that listen. Maybe that means we'll never scale to be an end of all. But it also means when things like this happen this year, if we had to shift direction, we were able to do it in a couple days, uh, and it, it 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 worked out. Well, others may feel differently, but I I certainly know from you know back when I was sitting in the buying chair, those are the kinds of companies I I wanted to work with. That was my preferred size company, not the big behemoth not the one where I frankly couldn't get the boss on the phone if I needed to. Um, and I think, you know, you also don't want someone that's so small that you're afraid the checks aren't going to clear. So right. you guys sound like you've really, really kind of, um, you know, uh, middled it in such a perfect way and, you know, keep it up. It also sounds like, right. It's not that your expertise was what got you through COVID production. It was just your general attitude. Um, and then the opportunity being there that, the digital platforms were looking to do more as maybe some other places were looking to do less. But the other piece of it was the celebrity involvement, right? I mean, they were home just like the rest of us. And looking at the laundry list of people you guys have worked with in recent past, you mentioned Oprah Winfrey, but you know, there's also Nicolas Cage on your recent uh, Netflix show about swearing, uh, you know, Terry Crews, Post Malone, uh, you know, and Curry, just so many, uh, obviously a lot of social media stars, um, you know, that you guys were equipped, that people were available and, and ready to pounce. I mean, did you, again, did you think, oh my God, we can go do something with Oprah Winfrey or, or people like Oprah Winfrey or did the opportunities more just present themselves? Are you guys just continuing to step in it or is there any rhyme or reason to, uh, to, your, to your strategy as you, as you continue to build things out? I want to be very clear in saying that all of those names came from Rhett's Rolodex. <laughs> yeah, it was just text. It's just a text away, Noah. Right. They all said, uh, this is our favorite camp counselor. And we, yeah. 
you know. I mean, listen, I think we pride ourselves on knowing how to treat talent. Um, and I think we involve them in the process maybe more than some others do. And that served us well. Um, but honestly, I mean, you know, you know, the drill, no, it's like talent begets talent, you know, and we, you know, people saw we were doing a Jennifer Lopez show and that was intriguing to other managers. And that made it easier when it came to trying to pull Nick in into history of swear words, which really funnier die uh, played a vital role in as well. And, um, you know, uh, we're, you just get to a point in your career too, where you have experience and you, you know how to speak to the, their team and, uh, hopefully get them excited about what you're doing. And um, we've just, we're, we're just old enough now. I think that we, we can have those conversations and we're coming out with more and more success, but it's a talent driven business. And um, so we're always eager to make those attachments when we can. And it's been helpful for us during the booking process of shows that have regular celebrity guests. And I think, you know, just full circle for this conversation we recognize early on that a lot of the most important talent right now or the talent that has some of the larger eyeballs may not be household names for mom and dad, but they are for a large majority of, uh, you know, Gen Z and Gen Y in terms of their viewing habits. And we made a really sort of like determined, um, a real, you know, we had a real clear, clear strategy over the last few years that we wanted to bring formats to some of these creators and influencers and try to give them an opportunity, even at some of the larger platforms that they wouldn't be able to do in terms of funding that content themselves. And that's worked out really well for, for Lauren, uh, for Lauren, uh, Lauren DIY on Craftopia and our YouTube series. And um, we're looking to do a lot more of that. We're finding that a lot of creators and influencers are coming to us being like, Hey, where's my, Craftopia, I would love to do something of that scale or like one of your YouTube originals. So we're, we're developing more in that space too. Multi-platform with millennial appeal. Stole it from your website. So, there you go. Yeah. Gen Z too though. We really, you know, Gen Z. That's right. Well, you might have to update the website then. <laughs> exactly. <laughs> yeah. um, all right. Well, you know, we're talking a lot about the future, but we need to go backwards as I do with all my episodes. And I would love to hear from, from both you guys got a little bit of advice about your younger selves when you were drunk at that bar in venice also what bar was it just out of curiosity it was the beach it was the beach yeah not the not the bar but the actual literal sandy beach oh got it oh wow yeah. that. okay red solo cups and everything yeah so uh, yeah. yep Folding i don't chairs. think brian was fully sponsored by yeti at that point although now i think he's actually a, Yet a yeti <laughs> ambassador but he's true um, yeah well, let's go back and talk about those younger selves. You know, we always talk about advice to your 25-year-old self. Uh, you know, I don't know how old you guys were exactly in 2013, but, you know, what what is your advice to the 25-year-old listening listening to this show today? Brian, why don't we start with you? From a pure, like, no, from a non-scripted standpoint, if you want a job, and a lot of people do and, and, and need one right now, I would say the best advice that I can give is very specific because it's a pet peeve is that when you go to do an interview for a non-scripted company or, or a, a network or anyone that that produces that content to actually watch consume and talk about projects that you like that are in that same genre that are actually on the air is of the utmost importance i can't tell you how many people Rhett and i will interview and when you just simply ask them what's your favorite show they're going to go down the laundry list of like netflix hit scripted shows and not actually mention any of the non-scripted shows. And I think there, I, I, myself and Rhett, we watch all of them, you know, we watch everything, but I think to actually care about the, 
the business that we're in and and to actually watch your competition's programming and to know how the format works and to be able to speak to what why you watch it and why you're excited about it um i think is is huge i think that's like usually a deciding factor is like does this person that we're hiring even watch reality tv and you'd be shocked by the amount of people that don't um so my my like random piece of advice would be before you go to an interview to watch the wall and see how it works you know watch floor is lava and and you know how many rounds are there and why do you like it and you know i think that's just like a really important piece well and speaking of floor is lava i know what you could do with that at twenty thousand square feet you know empty office, yeah right? well that's that yeah. reminds me so Rhett and i are big on our our joke pitches floor is guava it's the tropical version of floor is lava mm -hmm. but the entire floor same color it's still orange but it's guava wow think about it Go. Putting that out there right now. <laughs> uh, what about what about you, Rhett? Advice to young Rhett? Oh man, I think that's great advice that Brian just gave. Um, I would say just you know, and maybe I already mentioned this, but I think you got to figure out what you don't want to do. You know, it, you you can't just be like I want. You know, just wanting to be an unscripted is great, but there is just so many avenues you can go down. I think, given how you know there are these now clear paths within unscripted trying to get your hands in as many things as possible so that you can be really be well-rounded, especially if you want to end up producing. If you find you, yourself as a story AP two shows in a row, like very quickly that could just become the track that you stay on because it's the track you're on. Um, so you have to be willing to move laterally or uh, work hard to try to find other opportunities that can let you see a different side of the building, uh, the business and maybe just, uh, you know, pick up some other skills that um, could help you along the way. Um, I mean, it's, it's, it's even for us as we're trying to help our employees grow, uh, you know, we, we have to so sometimes you have to force that conversation. Um, but that would be, I guess that would be the best advice I could give. Well, it's great advice. Uh, I think you guys are chock full of it. I'm so happy for your success. I'm sure it's only going to continue. Gentlemen, thank you so much. This is great. Keep it up. Uh, maybe I'll find somebody out there who doesn't like you guys, but uh, but it hasn't happened yet. I really hope that's true. We can send true. you some names. We can send I love, names. I, of all things you said, to say well-liked, that means a lot. Hopefully that is true. Thank you yeah, for saying thanks, that. Thanks, man. Right. really appreciate it. Yeah, yeah, thanks for having us. So there you have it. The full story of B-17. Thanks to Greg Mercer for creating our show art, and to Chris Carmichael for composing our music and for all things technical. You can find their respective work at gregorymercer.com and christophercarmichael.com. Thanks as well to our guests, Brian Mahar and Rhett Backner. To my wonderful family for all their love and support, and to you, the listeners. Please come back again next time. I'm your host, Noah Pollock. Choose kind. <laughs>